Well, thank you. Um, I'm just going to test. Perfect. Um, so I had a word from the Holy Spirit this morning that I probably have too many slides, so I'm going to run through some things a little quicker than what I had planned. Um, so um, as Greg said, um, I'm a, a member here. I've been coming about a year. Uh, I've been coming with my wife, Julie, our two kids, uh, Luke and Jake, and Grandma Trudy. And uh, over the last well, about a year, a bit more, um, I've really been getting fascinated with the Old Testament uh, and really discovering that the Old Testament uh, is different, but not so different than what I thought uh, compared to the new. Um, and basically for today, I wanted to talk about the angel of the Lord uh, and how that's been a puzzle and a mystery for a lot of people, um, particularly before Jesus came. Um, and I have three primary goals today. So I want to view the Bible as a supernatural work of literary genius full of mysteries and hopefully to increase people's hunger to explore those mysteries and to look at some key passages uh, about the angel of the Lord with fresh eyes. Because as I got into this topic, I was like, oh, I didn't realize that this passage that I've read many times uh, actually contained the angel of the Lord in it um, and then how that dynamic worked itself out. So, um, I think this is God's trick about the Bible. Um, so, I'm just going to read this psalm. Uh, oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. So, the law there is a word Torah. I don't know about you, but I don't find the law of the Bible that um, interesting to meditate on day and night. But what that law actually, or what that word actually means, Torah, is it could mean law, direction, instruction. Um, so we can say that, that um, they delight in the direction, the instruction, the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. And what do you think about day and night? Do you think about a simple rule, do not steal, a simple story, uh, like the three little pigs or something like that? Um, I think for a lot of people, what would consume their mental space would be a puzzle, uh, a problem, a mystery, something like that. So if you have something going on in your life or you're thinking, hmm, how am I going to achieve this? How am I going to solve this? What's, what can I do? That would kind of ruminate in your mind. Um, and that's more and more what I feel like what the Bible presents to me is uh, something like that. So I think today that we could do a, uh, a thought experiment uh, where we could pretend that we are an ancient scribe living around 200 years before Christ. Um, and that, uh, uh, so if we're a scribe, it means we know how to read and write. We are educated. We know some of the uh, cultural um, things um, that common people would know who are educated. Uh, we're going to pretend that we have a rich boss who wants us to make a new copy of his Old Testament. And that would be a very expensive thing to do. Uh, it would be quite rare for someone to have an Old Testament in their own personal copy. Uh, and we'll see in a minute why that would be the case. We're going to assume that we're not a follower of Yahweh, so we've never read the Old Testament before. This will be our first time looking at these passages. And uh, as I said already, that you are educated, familiar with prominent ancient religions and cultures and events and so on. So, um, before we jump into that, let's just divine a few things quickly. Um, so, angel is translated from a Hebrew word called malach. Um, this is used in the Bible to mean 
a spiritual or divine being, or it could mean a person, a human, that's a messenger or an envoy. Uh, and those are two passages there where it's used differently. So in the Exodus passage, it's uh, basically saying that God's going to send an angel to drive out the Canaanites. And then in the Numbers passage, that Israel is sending a messenger uh, to speak with a king. So we're going to be focusing primarily on the use of that word to refer to a divine being, not to a, a human being. Um, and angels being represented with wings um, in pictures and art seems to have happened around the 4th or 5th century A.D., uh, likely what the biblical authors had in mind when they're speaking about like a spiritual or divine being uh, with that term malach is someone in a uh, human form. Um, seraphim and cherubim, you might have heard those names, they have wings, but they're never described as malach uh, or that uh, word translated as angel in English in any passages that I can find. Um, so I kind of feel like the seraphim and cherubim are in a, a separate category uh, of spiritual beings than uh, what an angel would be. Uh, we'll also see, too, that sometimes the Bible will have the angel of the Lord, uh, and that means the angel of Yahweh, or the angel of God, which is the angel of Elohim. So Elohim is another word used in the uh, Hebrew Bible for God. Um, both are basically interchangeable. So if you're reading, you know, a text and it just keeps repeating the same phrase over and over, it kind of gets a little boring, so sometimes they might switch it up and use the angel of God or the angel of the Lord. So, you are this ancient scribe, you have this Genesis scroll before you that you've opened up, and your task now is going to be to write out each word in that uh, onto a new um, scroll, uh, and you can see why this would be a very expensive thing. You're basically going to pay somebody to go through and write uh, every single word on there with the same structure, the same paragraph uh, form and everything. Um, and if you notice on this picture, it's kind of cool. There's some stitches there. Uh, so essentially what would happen with the scroll is they would have these pieces and they would stitch them together to make the full complete scroll. So you've got a big task ahead of you. You're going to have to do many of those scrolls to get through the whole Old Testament. Um, so as a ancient person reading the Genesis scroll for the first time, one thing that would pop out to you is that the creation account is very, very different from what you've heard and read about in other uh, ancient religions. Uh, many other ancient religions, there'd be like a dragon that gets killed by some gods, and then out of that, the earth is formed. Or there could be two gods mating, and then out of that, the, the earth is formed. In this account, we have a, a single being speaking, and uh, the, the world is taking shape uh, out of that. Um, there seems to be only one god, which would be very unique as well, too, because uh, most of the ancient religions had pantheons or several gods. Uh, often they're competing with one another. Uh, sometimes there would be one who is more powerful than the rest, um, but often they end up getting killed or something like that as the, that um, sort of religion's uh, stories progress. Uh, you notice too that people have a place of honor. So Adam, when he's created, he's basically put in charge of God's personal garden. Um, and that would be quite unique. That would strike you because a lot of the ancient religions viewed people as an annoyance to the gods or that the gods were fed up with them or there was something to be manipulated uh, by the gods. So already this um, scroll is, is presenting a very different type of a being than what you're used to in your uh, context in the ancient world. 
the fall is not surprising to you. There seems to be um, unanimous consent that something is off with the world and the state of the world. Uh, and then you encounter this person who's going to crush the head of the snake. Uh, and you wonder who that's going to be. Um, and that would be somebody that you would be curious to discover. It's right in the beginning. Who's this, who's this going to be? Um, the pre-flood rebellion, so a lot of ancient uh, religions do have a flood myth, um, so, and a lot of them do say something along the lines of the, the people were becoming a nuisance to the gods, and the gods decided to wipe them out with a flood. Um, so that would be familiar to you. It would sound a bit of a different take on there, especially since what often happened in those flood myths is that it was rebellious gods who came in and uh, uh, told people, oh, there's a flood coming, like, get ready, prepare yourself. Uh, in this case, it's actually God himself who's saying, no, uh, there's a flood coming, but I have a plan, and uh, I have a person that I've chosen to carry on the uh, human lineage. Um, the Tower of Babel or Babylon would be familiar to you. The culture of the Babylonians is a, a very well-known culture, and so would the tower have been. Um, so that would have all resonated with you, and you would have um, been, uh, been unsurprised of some of the things that happened there. Uh, Abraham being from Ur, that would kind of be like saying Abraham from New York City. Like Ur would be a very big, famous place that you would know, a very powerful uh, city or place. And then you notice that this Yahweh likes to appear to Abraham quite a bit. Um, he um, uh, doesn't just show up once or twice. He shows up repeatedly over and over. And it seems like in the form of a man uh, pretty much every time. Uh, and then you hit the first occurrence of the angel of the Lord uh, in the Hebrew Bible uh, or the Old Testament. Um, and this is in Genesis 16. So this is when Hagar, um, the servant of Sarah, uh, runs away from Abraham and Sarah. Um, and then um, the angel of the Lord finds her. And let's read this text together here and let's be suspicious about what we're reading there. Um, so then Sarah treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness, along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarah's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God's hears, God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me, Elroy in the, the Hebrew. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? Um, so, you're writing your scroll, and one of the things that I think would immediately jump out to you is this angel seems to really talk out of turn, talk above his authority, uh, because he says in verse 9 there, I will give you more descendants than you will count. So, you'd, you'd be a little suspicious, and you'd say, why is he saying I will do that? Wouldn't he, if he's a messenger 
or an envoy, which is the, the word Moloch there for angel of the Lord, uh, wouldn't he say, like, the Lord will give you, or he's, he seems to be kind of a little bit presumptuous with how he talks about uh, what's going to happen. Um, the other thing that I think would really jump out to you is, who does Hagar think that she's seen? Uh, she sounds like she thinks like she's seen God, right? Um, so, this is the first time you've encountered this character uh, in your uh, production of the Genesis scroll, and you're thinking, hmm, this, this character seems a bit odd, um, but I'm, my task is to write what's there, and I'm just going to keep an eye and see sort of what happens as the story develops. So, we move on from um, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, uh, and now we're going to look at a passage uh, about Jacob. Um, and basically what's happened now is we've had Abraham and Sarah have given birth to Isaac, and Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob steals his older brother's birthright, Esau's birthright, and um, his parents want him to marry um, someone from their uh, tribe. So they're sending him away to his uncle. And on that journey, he has um, an encounter with God, um, so we're going to read through this, and it's going to set up a part um, that's going to come after. Uh, so Jacob left the Beersheba and went toward Haran. Uh, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. Because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And you and your offspring shall all uh, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He named that place Bethel, and Bethel means house of God. Um, so on his journey, Jacob encounters God, um, and he anoints a stone. Um, and then later on, as we're going through the text here, um, he's now in the land uh, of his uncle, uh, he's married two of his uncle's daughters, and he has um, uh, herds or flocks that are growing, and his uncle's sons become jealous of him, and uh, so his uncle as well starts to get a little bit irritated with him. So God says, okay, I want you to go back to where you're from. And he brings uh, his two wives to him, uh, and he tells them about a dream that he had. Uh, in the breeding season of the flock, I lifted my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats 
that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. So, I think people caught it. The angel says he's the God of Bethel. Where was the angel in the original description of the encounter that he had at Bethel? This would be puzzling to you, right? You're writing this down. So you're not just reading it and you kind of just pass over it because you're half asleep. Um, you're writing this down, so you're catching these words and you think to yourself, well, what, what is going on here? This is very confusing. Um, uh, it, it does happen where scribes make errors and maybe you think, hmm, maybe someone made an error with this, but again, your job is to reproduce what's there, not to try to correct it to what you think should be there. So again, this is something where you tuck in the back of your mind and you say, okay, well, let's, let's see what happens. Let's see how this progresses over the course of the, the scrolls that I'm writing down. So now we hit the end of Jacob's life. Um, so uh, Jacob has all of his sons. They sell one Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And then in Egypt, he basically saves everybody because they prepare for a famine. Uh, and now Jacob and everybody, all of the family are in Egypt and um, this is the end of Jacob's life, and Joseph has brought his two sons to Jacob, and Jacob is praying a blessing for the two sons. And uh, this is what Jacob said, or this is what Jacob says. Um, and he blessed Joseph and said, "The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who shepherded me all my life unto this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil." May he bless the boys. And through them, let my name be perpetuated, the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them multiply into many in the midst of the earth. So, in this passage, um, a question comes is, who, who is blessing the boys exactly? Is it the God whom my fathers walked? Is it the God who shepherded me? Is it the angel who redeemed me from all evil? So it appears that way in the, the way the sentence is structured. Uh, we, we don't really have a period until after the boys. So it seems like we're including all of those things into the may he bless the boys. Um, now, one thing that doesn't come across in the English translation, but would be something that uh, a Hebrew person reading this would see right away, uh, is Hebrew verbs are like French, uh, for people who remember French, how to say I go versus they go, there's different spelling for uh, go. Uh, so that would say if there's a singular or a plural. So in this case, the verb to bless is written in the singular, not in the plural. So you couldn't say may they bless the boys, that'd be incorrect. The verb is written as singular, so it's may he bless the boys. So you notice that. Um, right away, and you think to yourself, this is very strange. Uh, this prayer is essentially compressing those three sentences into one individual. So the God before whom my fathers walked, the God who shepherded me, and the angel are being compressed into uh, a single 
entity or, or being. The other thing that probably jump out too is uh, the angel redeemed him from all evil. Like, what, where did the angel do that exactly uh, in, in the story? Um, it's not super obvious to me as I was reading through the story exactly where Jacob is, is pointing to. So you think to yourself, well, huh, what's, what's happening here? Where's, where's Jacob getting this from? Um, so let's jump ahead in the story to the burning bush. Um, so now the Israelites are in Egypt for several hundred years. They're now being enslaved by the Egyptians. And uh, Moses is born and has fled to uh, fled Egypt. Uh, and then God encounters him at the burning bush. And let's see what it says there about the angel. And Moses was a shepherd with the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west of the desert. And he came to the mountain of God, to Horeb. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in the flame of fire. From the midst of a bush, he looked, and there was the bush burning with fire. But the bush was not being consumed. And Moses said, let me turn aside and see this great sight. Why does the bush not burn up? And Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see. And God called to him from the midst of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, you must not come near to here. Take off your sandals from on your feet, because the place on which you are standing, it is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, because he was afraid of looking at God. And Yahweh said, surely I have seen the misery of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry of distress because of their oppressors, for I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them into the promised land. So you're writing this down. So you're catching all this that you're writing. So you notice right away that there's the angel of Yahweh in the bush. And you think to yourself, how big is this bush? There's the angel in there. And then Yahweh is speaking. How, how many beings are in this bush? Or maybe there's the angel in the bush and then Yahweh somewhere else uh, speaking to Moses. Um, and then you see there that, you know, if we say, okay, there's the angel in the bush, that's the fire, and then maybe Yahweh speaking somewhere else, you see that Moses hid his face because he was afraid of looking at God. So why, why is Moses afraid of looking at God in that passage then? Um, so this would all be very confusing to you. You'd think, well, I don't, I don't really get what's, exactly what's going on. Um, this angel might be representing God there, but then maybe God is speaking somewhere else, or maybe Moses is hearing a voice in his, his head. Um, so again, we say, okay, well, our job is to write what's there, not to correct it, not to change it to what we think should be there and to reproduce the text uh, as it's written. So we jump ahead in the story. So now Moses has gone to Egypt. He's, um, uh, the Israelites are now leaving Egypt after the plagues. Um, and this is what we hear about the pillar of cloud and fire. So the Lord Yahweh went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with the pillar of cloud. And he provided at uh, sorry, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night, and the Lord Yahweh did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from its place in front of them. 
okay? So Yahweh is in the fire and in the cloud. So we read in the very next chapter, so um, Pharaoh and the Egyptians have changed their mind. They're reneging on their deal, and they're coming back after the Israelites, and this is what we find. Then the angel of God, who had been leading the people of Israel, moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. The cloud settled between the Egyptians and the Israelite camp. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and the Israelites did not approach each other all night. So who's in the pillar? Who, how does this make, how do, we, how do we understand this? So the Lord Yahweh is there in, in the chapter 13, and then the angel is there in chapter 14. Um, so you think, well, I don't know. <laughs> this is very confusing. This, there seems to be interchanging going on of these two characters, uh, and it's not exactly clear how this interchange is happening uh, in, in the passages that you're writing down as, the, as a scribe. So now we move to Judges 2. Um, so now the Israelites, they've went to Mount Sinai, they've met with God there, they've got the laws there, they've wandered in the desert for 40 years, now they've gone into the land, um, and they've started to conquer the promised land, and they're supposed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And the first chapter of Judges is basically a summary of all of these different tribes who failed to drive out all of the inhabitants of the land. Uh, So we're seeing the failings of them to obey what they were uh, told to do. So now we come to this passage. Uh, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called that, sorry, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So in this passage, we see the angel of the Lord saying that I brought you up from Egypt. Okay, he was in the pillar of fire from that passage that we had read. Uh, he says that I swore to give to your fathers um, uh, a land. Uh, I will never break my covenant uh, with you. Uh, you have not obeyed my voice. So I say to you, I will not drive out the people uh, of the land. So now the angel of the Lord is saying a lot of eyes there. Maybe he's speaking on behalf of Yahweh as a representative. Um, But then it looks like he's making a judgment, right? He's saying, now, I'm not going to do something because of all of your disobedience. So, if we're thinking that he's just speaking as a representative, I think it's getting harder and harder to to have that position as we're reading this passage. Uh, We saw the one in 
uh, Genesis with Hagar, where he's kind of saying, like, well, I'm going to give you all these, you know, descendants. Um, so again, now he's saying a lot of eyes for everything that uh, is supposed to happen. So uh, we also had, so we have now he's making a judgment. We have where Jacob was saying he's redeeming evil. Um, and uh, we have where with Hagar, he was making a promise, right, uh, to Hagar. So you're probably all getting very suspicious. Um, there's something going on with this angel. So as a scribe um, who knows Jewish people, you would know that they are very particular, that God is one. That would be a very big part of the Jewish religion. Um, and this is sort of the main verse that they would state is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So you know this, you're aware of this, but you're confused by everything you're reading here. So the Lord is one, but we have these two characters kind of being intermingled with each other in the text. So you think to yourself, I know a rabbi uh, that I'm going to go and see and ask what is going on. Please explain to me why I'm seeing these two characters uh, intermingled with one another. Um, So you go to see this rabbi. He says, okay, go and read Daniel chapter 7 and come back to me afterwards and think about it and, and see what you make of that. Um, so this is what Daniel chapter 7 says. So this is a vision that Daniel had, and it says, I looked, thrown, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So we're going to skip one verse here that is not relevant. Um, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So, probably suspicious as to who that uh, person on the clouds, uh, riding the clouds is. Um, We um, have the New Testament to inform us of that, but we're thinking as someone who doesn't have the New Testament here. Um, so the cloud rider, it was a very common idea in the ancient world. Kind of be like if you heard somebody say, like, you know, faster than a locomotive or something like that, you'd think of Superman, right? So the cloud rider would be a common uh, theme where if we read a text where something is riding a cloud, well, humans don't do that. People don't do that. This must be a god, a deity, something like that. And the most famous one um, in the ancient world was probably Baal, who was a uh, a fertility god or a weather god and was credited with making the rains come. Um, So as an ancient reader, reading Daniel 7, when you see this cloud rider, um, you're immediately thinking, this is not a human being. So one like the Son of Man, okay, in the form or likeness of a man, but that's not a human being on that cloud. Um, And then you see what happens. So he comes to the ancient days, so we're reading Daniel 7, and we have this Ancient of Days, 
and we have this cloud rider coming towards them. So we have these two beings there, um, and you'd think, well, what, what's going on? So God is one. We have this Ancient of Days, and we have this cloud rider. But God is one. How, how, do we, how do we understand that? So you go back to your rabbi friend, and you say, okay, I've read this passage. You said it would help me. I'm confused <laughs> even more. Um, and your rabbi says, we have a theory that there are two powers or Yahwehs in heaven. Because um, that's how we can make sense of this, is we think, hmm, well, there's these scenes where there seems to be two beings sort of working together, intermingling with each other, um, and maybe there's two of them. Maybe that's, maybe that's how we should think about it, is there's two Yahwehs in heaven. Um, and this was something that um, passages like Daniel 7, the angel of the Lord, kind of let people to come to this uh, theory. Um, not everybody agreed or believed it. Uh, just like in Christianity today, there's many different interpretations for different passages of the Bible, and people will have different opinions as to what they think it means. Uh, this is another example of one that definitely was confusing. Um, so Psalm 110, a psalm of David, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adon. So Adon is just a Hebrew word for a master or king. It could refer to God as well too. Um, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So people would wonder, who's, who's Yahweh speaking to when he says, Yahweh said to my Lord? So who's that second Lord there? Um, so some Jews suggested there's maybe these two Yahwehs. There's one like the Ancient of Days and one like the Son of Man. They're distinct, but they're one. There's the one invisible and transcendent, and then there's the other one that appears as a man. And this wasn't considered a heresy, because you'd think, well, how is God one with that? But this wasn't considered a heresy. They were thinking, okay, there's, there's these two distinct Yahwehs that are one, um, up until about 100 AD. And you'd probably be very suspicious about that timing there of 100 AD, because that's about, you know, Jesus would now have been dead and then risen, and essentially, uh, a lot of Jews were converting to Christianity. Um, and this would have been a, a, an avenue for them to understand that Jesus could be God, right? Um, so you go back to this scribe there, and, and this is what he, he sort of tells you, and you think, huh. So the conclusion to our experiment would be, okay, Yahweh is unlike any deity of the time. So number one, he's caring for people. Um, they're not a nuisance to him. Uh, number two, um, he's presented in a very odd way, right? Um, He's one but two, it seems like, in those passages. Um, so, who is this angel? Um, there were lots of theories uh, at that time as to who he was. Uh, one of them was that he is just an angel. He's, maybe he's the archangel Michael or some other angel. Um, one of them is that he was Melchizedek. So, Melchizedek is the priest that um, Abraham gives a tenth of his um, uh, possessions to when he saves Lot. Uh, Melchizedek seems to clearly be a human being, so it doesn't really fit um, that that would be a potential. And the other one was, well, maybe there's, there's two Yahwehs in heaven. Um, so, I think we should look at what the New Testament says about the angel. Um, there's not a, a lot that really kind of hits you over the head. Um, Jude is probably one that I found extremely striking. Um, now, I want to remind you Although you once fully knew it, 
that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So when did Jesus save a people out of the land of Egypt? So that's meant to be like cold water in your face as you're reading this. You're reading this and like, Jesus was saving a people from the land of Egypt? So Jude is basically saying, okay, Jesus was there. Jesus was there at the Exodus. Uh, he was there saving a, a people out of the land of, uh, the land of Egypt. You also get um, in Stephen's uh, summary of the Old Testament before he gets killed, that he says, uh, this is the one, he's talking about Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He, Moses, received living oracles to give to you. So if you look through the Exodus very closely, um, when there's Moses and the people at Mount Sinai, you don't really get a reference to the angel there. Um, and in this summary, summary that Stephen gives of the Old Testament, nobody jumps in to correct him when he's saying this. Um, so it seems like in their context, they had sort of a tradition or an understanding that the angel was there at Sinai with the people and with Moses. So I think we probably got to the, the, the point where, you know, this is where the Trinity had come out of from the Old Testament is we have these two characters, these two Yahwehs uh, in heaven. And uh, from there, um, uh, the disciples and the apostles could very easily say, yes, Jesus is this cloud rider. Jesus is this character. And then Jesus himself, let's look at what he has to say about who he is uh, in Matthew 26. Um, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, you have said it, and in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the cloud, clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, blasphemy, why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. So we've got two brackets there in verse 64. That's basically Jesus saying from Psalm 110 uh, that he's going to sit at the right hand of God, that he is the second Lord that is being referenced there. And then he's also saying uh, that he's going to be coming on the cloud of heaven. And that immediately would have identified him in that Daniel 7 passage of the cloud rider coming to the Ancient of Days. And we can see why the high priest freaks out and tears his clothes, because he's obviously said, I am uh, the second Yahweh, the second power in heaven. Um, so, from all of this, um, I, I hadn't heard... Um, much about the angel of the Lord, a lot of these Old Testament passages I would read over and just completely miss um, the intermingling that was happening there. And uh, this was a key way that um, Jewish people were then able to um, come to Christ because they're able to say, yes, there was a tradition there in our past um, that there's a man, a cloud rider, and the Ancient of Days, and they are, they are one, basically.
Um, so a problem for further thought. This is something that as I was researching this that I came about and I was like, I don't really know what to do with this. Um, so I'll, I'll uh, put it out there and you guys can think about it as well. So John says, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is God himself. Uh, he is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. And he also says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise them up at that last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. So, who, who walked with Adam then? So if no one's seen the Father, who walked with Adam? Who walked with Enoch? Who appeared to Abraham? Who appeared to Moses when he asked to see God's face? Could that have all have been uh, Jesus before he was born, the, the pre-incarnate Christ? Um, I don't know what I think about that yet. <laughs> That's something where as I was going through this, I was like, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know what I think anymore about that. Um, but uh, I find those kind of problems interesting because now I can go back and read through those stories and try to think of it from a, a different perspective. And just to be clear, so... Um, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus is not an angel who was raised up. The text is intermingling, showing that this Yahweh and angel of the Lord, they're kind of using them interchangeably in some passages, identifying them as the same being, not as um, and just a, a lowly angel who, who now has been raised up. So God is triune, and uh, that would be part of the basis as how, how the uh, apostles came up with this idea of God being um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because often you'll hear criticism that, where did these guys make this up from? Like, where did this come from? Well, in the Old Testament, it was there, and people were closely reading through the Old Testament and being puzzled by this, saying, how is this working? How is this fitting together? So... That's the end of my message for today. Um, I'd like to invite the worship team up. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear from people. If people have questions or comments, um, I'd love to hear them. If there's other mysteries or um, things that people are thinking about like that, I'd love to hear about those as well too. And thank you for your time. <laughs>